Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, I have a familiar guest, Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences, join me. And this one was kind of fun because uh, we went into a time machine of sorts and revisited a sort, sort of, uh, I guess, our origin story, if you will, the, the moment that uh, connected Mike and I and led to uh, all of the things that you all have grown to appreciate that we share on the Global Medical Device Podcast. So I really want to you know, enjoy this episode. It was, it was fun for me. It was fun for Mike. But um, before you do, I didn't have a chance to share this on the podcast. You know, the first time that he and I connected was back in late 2014. And what I appreciate most about my relationship with Mike Drews is that he has caused me to think about the world a lot differently, specifically, within, of course, within the med device space. But uh, just because there's a rule or regulation, it's not black and white. And I need to think for myself and I need to, to understand uh, what's important to, to the patient that's involved with the thing that I'm doing and so on and so forth. I mean, to quote something that Mike talks about, or paraphrase anyway, he sees his role largely as teaching others how to think, not what to think. And I think that's really profound. So again, enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And I thought we would, I don't know, have a little fun today. I hope that's okay with all of you listening. And the fun that I want to have is, um, well, first and foremost, familiar guest of the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences has joined me. Mike, welcome. Thank you, John. You're welcome. And the other day, you and I were just kind of, I guess, reminiscing might be the right word, um, or, or rem reminding ourselves sort of our origin story, how we got connected to one another. And I thought we would dive into that a little bit, you know, certainly for uh, maybe a few <laughs>, laughs and memories and things of that nature. But more importantly, the topic that, that connected us, every, at least originally, is still one that uh, seems to be an area of struggle and challenge for the industry. So there will be something topical and, and meaningful and helpful uh, through this as well. But does that sound okay with you? I think that's great, John. And it's one of the questions I get when I meet some of uh, <laughs> our, our fans, so to speak, is they ask the question of how is it that we got, how, how is it that this started? How did we get together? So I'm looking forward to today's discussion as well. All right. Well, uh, let's let's take a moment to go in the Wayback Machine. And you know, this was December of 2014. And at that point in time, you know, Greenlight was still a pretty new company. But you know, I, I'm scouring the internet and, and consuming all this wonderful content. And I come across this podcast titled Do You Make These Design Control Mistakes? And I listened to it and the, the person on the other end of that podcast was Mike Drews. And uh, it, it sort of uh, sparked uh, or triggered a re reaction in me to which I then followed up with a sort of rebuttal of that. Um, <laughs> I heard Mike say this and this is what I believe and that sort of thing. And I, I mean, I know you remember that pretty well. 
The uh, yeah, John. You know what? You're being very you're being very kind. Um, <laughs> I would say that you 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 did to me what the bleeding edge tried to do to the medical device. Oh, no, that's, <laughs> in, uh, that, <laughs> in your column. But seriously, let me explain further. And this is, you know, why I think both of us wanted to have this, this discussion today. I think that you raised a, a number of legitimate points, but you know, to be fair, when I read your response to my podcast, I was, my, my feathers were a little ruffled, but you know what? I'm fan a fan of the old adage, keep your friends close and, and your enemies closer. <laughs> I didn't know you at that time. So I said, you know what? I'm going to think that I'm a wackadoodle, if not, uh, you know, worse. And, you know, maybe, uh, you know, try to better understand. And long story short, John, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. I think that the more we talked after that in the conversation and the more we, we've spoken since then over the last, you know, about six years or so, I think that we're singing exactly the same songs, just maybe in a very, very slightly different key. But I think fundamentally, you know, we have a lot more similarities than differences. Would you agree? Uh, totally. And I, I have to give you all the credit in the world because you, even though something that I said or, or wrote, might have been uh, a little bit of a, a feather ruffler. To your credit, you uh, you reached out. You said, "Hey, let's get on the phone and let's talk." And and I, I remember that day that that I remember where, where I was very vividly the day that you and I spoke on the phone. And, and you know, this was the, the I'll say the more uh, uh, I'll say the more angry version of John. Not that I was angry, but I'm certainly very, those that know me today. I'm pretty calm and and at peace with everything. But I was prepared for a battle when you and I got on the phone, to be quite honest. I don't think I've ever shared this with you. Um, <laughs> and then and then as you and I spoke, it was like, to your point, yeah, we're we're both on the same page here. We, we are passionate about medical device product development and design controls and prudent engineering and all those sorts of things. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy that that was a birth of a, a wonderful relationship. Well, I am. As well, John, and you know, I don't want to just be reminiscent here. I also want to be pragmatic. What I'd like to do is I've taken a uh, a recent reread through your blog that you wrote in response to my uh, podcast. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to yeah. uh, to talk about a few of the points that you made. Um, and regrettably, uh, as, as we both know, you know, a lot of companies seem to continue to make these mistakes over and over. You know, even today. So I don't want anybody to feel like just because, you know, this started six years ago, it's ancient history and it doesn't apply. On the contrary, I think, it's, you know, everything still applies 100 percent as much today, maybe even more as it did six years ago. Yeah. So one of the points that I made in my podcast, John, and uh, this is a recurring theme in several of our conversations since then, is that I think the root cause to use the engineering vernacular of so many companies getting in trouble with the FDA is because they folk, they try to focus more on what the regulation says as opposed to trying to understand and follow the intent of the regulation or what I call the regulatory logic. And you responded in your, in your blog, John, and this is a direct quote from you, to state that the root cause of why companies are confused about design controls because the focus is on regulation is just wrong, close quote. And so I'm just wondering, John, do you think maybe you've had a little bit of an epiphany since then? Um, uh, or is that still your belief that um, it's sufficient for companies to focus on the, the what the regulation says, i.e. the letter of the law, as opposed to its intent, the spirit of the law? Yes, yeah, I think um, 
Yeah, that's a really good point. And thanks for reminding me of my words and putting me on the spot. My, um, my intention behind that statement was not that the, it's not, it wasn't about interpretation of or following the regulations per se, uh, one way or the other. It was more about, I don't think that's the problem that companies are struggling with. I, I think there's almost the, the theme that I see a lot. It's not that there's a resistance to compliance. Um, but there's, maybe there sort of is, you know, it's like, it's like companies are, they sort of ignore the regulations, um, uh, more than anything else. It's, I, I don't see a lot of companies that are trying to strictly interpret, uh, each of the design control regulations to the letter. I see there's like this, this exercise more so that, uh, not that they're trying to avoid it either. It's just that it's almost like they don't even know the regulations exist, you know? Well, if they don't know the regulations exist, that's indicative of a whole other set of problems. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but let's let's start to peel this onion back a little bit a little bit further. Um, another of the the comments that I made in that original podcast was that the design controls were very vague and they were written purposely very vague because the medical device industry is a very broad industry and they need to be able to be applied to everything from band aids to artificial hearts. In response to that, John, you said that uh, again. This is a direct quote: uh, "Medical device companies confused about are, are confused about design controls because the regulations are too vague." So, I guess yeah. the question to you is: Do you think that that vagueness is a good thing or a bad thing? In other words, I view you know vague, nebulous, non-specific regulation to be a huge advantage for many reasons, as we've talked about over the last six years, John. But uh, I guess my question to you is, do you think that because they're vague, is, is that good or bad for medical device companies? Well, I think it's good. Uh, to, and I agree with your point. I, I think the the challenge, and it's not, this isn't necessarily my belief. Um, I'm just sharing anecdotes of what I hear for people. A lot of medical device professionals, uh, a lot of times even medical device product development professionals, I think they're looking to be spoon-fed. And you and I have talked a lot about sort of this theme in the past. Like they want FDA to tell them what to do, when to do it, how to do it, or at least that's what they say. And as you and I have talked over the years, I would doubt that if that became the reality that people would would actually like that. Uh, I think the challenge that people have with the vagueness of the regulations is they're not thinking. You know, they don't, they don't take it to the next level. They don't take the take the vague regulations and interpret what those mean to them and their company. I think that's the challenge. So um, does that make sense? Yes. And, and you know, taking it a, a step or two further, regrettably, I do agree with you that it seems today, and of course, this is a stereotype, you know, there are exceptions, but more and more people, they literally want to be spoon-fed. They yeah. want to be led like sheep. They yeah. want be, to be told what to do, how to do it, when to do it, um, whether it's from the FDA or somebody else. And I see this, never mind in, in companies in the industry and in FDA, I see it in my academic teaching and my graduate students who, you know, we're, we're not teaching people how to think anymore. We're teaching people how to, you know, just simply follow a recipe. And let me just remind you, John, is something I've said in many of our conversations. You know, when we meet the regulatory requirements, that's just being a C student. You know, so the question is, do we, and I'll leave this as a rhetorical question, do we want, do we need anybody, including the FDA, to tell us to do things that as 
you know, as medical device professionals, we should know to do these things anyway. And I'm sorry if this sounds yeah. a bit harsh, John, but people that don't know certain basic things, they shouldn't be in this business. I, I mean, I had a situation agree. once, I don't know if I shared this in a previous, I, pre, I don't know if I shared this in a certain, in, in, in a previous conversation, John. I had a company call me, they were working on an implant, a device that was going to go inside somebody's body. And among other things, I asked them, well, where are you on your biocompatibility testing? And they said, what's that? <laughs> My goodness. I mean, <laughs> there are certain things yeah, that if you're going to, you Chad, you're laughing. I wish I could say that yeah, I was making, I making this laugh. up. I am not making this up. You know, this is exactly why we have a lot of the regulation that we have. Right. But anyway, let's 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 move on, because uh, I think, you know, again, I want to use this as constructively as I can so that people, you know, stop, quite frankly, making the same mistakes over and over again. So another of the things that I talked about in my podcast is uh, design inputs and outputs and verification and validation. And one of the things that you pointed out in your in your blog response is that what the sponsor should do is prove that the medical device that they designed and developed is designed and developed correctly. And the question that I have for you, John, is what does correctly mean and how do we show it? Yeah. For example, you know, when we get into verification and validation, it's, as you know, it's all about showing that we've met the needs of the user and so on. In other words, did we, uh, did, did we design the right device? Did we design the device right? But here's a question for you, John. Where in the design controls or anywhere in the regulation does it ask us the question? question, did we ask the right question? Did we solve the right problem? In other words, what good is getting the right answer if we're asking the wrong question? Thoughts on that one, John? Because I see it so many times, you know, yeah. there's an issue that I used to say to my medical students, the surgery went perfectly, but the patient died anyway. Well, the, the engineering equivalent, we designed the medical device perfectly, but the patient died anyway. The regulatory or quality of equipment, we followed the regulation perfectly, but the patient died anyway. So, so how do we know that we're designing and developing the device correctly, to use your words? Yeah, um, and, it, and this is a great point that if someone were to follow a literal interpretation of regulations and not think for themselves, they, they, they may have a perfect design history file, <laughs> a perfect set of uh, inputs and outputs and, and verification that shows that they perfectly did everything. Um, you know, to me, this is all about understanding the, the core of why the device is being designed and developed to begin with. What problem are you trying to solve? What, what clinical issue are you trying to address? And, and I think this is an area where a lot of people really miss the mark is because they forget about capturing the user needs. I mean, if you go to the A2030 regulations, there's no section that explicitly states uh, user needs. There is one for design inputs. There are for outputs, et cetera, et cetera. But there's nothing that explicitly says user needs. Thou shalt do this, per se. Now, if you go to the, the FDA design control guidance document, which I still think to this day is a really, really good guidance document, there's this infamous waterfall diagram that shows user needs starting the whole cascade of things. But a lot of people sort of forget about that. And I, and I think that that leads to problems. I mean, they, they don't understand what's important to the end user. They don't understand what's important from the patient perspective. They don't capture that information. They make assumptions. And, and I think when people make assumptions, like they, you know, I, I did this for, for the first couple of years of my career, I would start a project 
based on what I thought I understood, I would put my heads down for, for literally months, defining requirements and building prototypes and doing testing and, and so on and forth, so forth. And I would come out of verification and say, look, oh, look, I'm, I, my, my device meets, I designed it correctly. It meets all those requirements that I defined. And then you start to put it in the hands of the of users and you realize, oh, wow, I really missed something here. I forgot about that voice of user. And, and I think that's a, a problem. Hey, everyone. Connor Romaley here from Greenlight Guru. Have you ever implemented a paper-based quality system with a customer and just know once the project ends, they're going to struggle maintaining compliance on paper? If so, check out our partner programs page and let's chat about changing the future of quality management. I agree with you, John. I think that's, uh, that is a problem, no doubt. However, I would offer that there's a, an even bigger problem here that happens before we get to any of the stuff that, that you just mentioned. And that is, you know, one of the underlying tenets of the entire design controls is, as you just described, to make sure that our device meets the needs of the user. While the underlying assumption there is that the user knows what they need. And I learned as a biomedical engineer a long time ago not to make that assumption. In other words, why would we assume that our user knows, in fact, what they really need? They probably know what they think they need, but they but do they know what they really need? And I'll give you one or two quick examples to illustrate. If I have a catheter, uh, for example, a user, a cardiologist or some other kind of physician might say, gee, this is a pretty good catheter or stent. But if I take this catheter and make it a little longer, a little shorter, a little fatter, a little thinner, I can use it for something totally different. That's what I call evolutionary product development. On the contrary, what is the likelihood of a cardiologist or a physician saying, this is a pretty good catheter, this is a pretty good stent. But if I take a gene that can turn off hyperplasia and put it inside of a virus and deliver that on the surface of a stent, now I can do something really, as we would say, as I coming from Boston, John, wicked cool. That is revolutionary product development. So one of the most significant limitations of the design controls is that it makes the assumption that the user knows, in fact, what they really need. Or to use an even simpler metaphor, John, and I may have mentioned this in some of our other discussions. Today, cars are ubiquitous, but back in the day, there were no cars and everybody was wearing, was riding horses. So imagine we were, you know, diligent engineers following the design controls and we were trying to come up with a better mode of transportation. Than, than a horse. And we surveyed our users. We asked our users what would they like to see in a better mode of transportation. Well, I'm pretty sure, John, most people are going to say, I want a stronger horse. I want a bigger horse. I want a faster horse. But they're all going to you know, look like horses. Most of them are not going to say, gee, what I, well, a horse is pretty good. But what I really want is a car. So there's two limitations that I just want to point out. And you can say you agree or, or you disagree, John. One is um, the underlying assumption is that the user knows what they really want. And then the second and even more frustrating to me as an engineer is that most of the regulation, including the design controls, it pretty much encourages evolutionary product development. And at the same time, it doesn't encourage or maybe even discourages revolutionary product development. Yeah. I, that's that's what I think, John. Would you agree or disagree? Uh, you know, I, I guess I hadn't thought of it exactly 
the way you just framed it. And as you were sharing that, I had a, a thought. Uh, we'll leave it maybe as a rhetorical question for now or maybe want to explore it at a, at a later time. But, you know, I, I do think that you're, you're spot on with something here. It's almost like, you know, um, you, you and I have talked about regulatory strategy and regulatory submissions and, and things of that nature a, a few times in the past. And there's a preponderance for people to want to go down this 510K path because it's, well, for a litany of reasons, some of which I could speculate they perceive it's easier, more straightforward, yada, yada, so on and so forth, um, which to your point, I, I think that illustrates your point, the, the preponderance for people to to lean into or, or to prefer the 510K regulatory path lends itself very well to your theory. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, regrettably, you're right. That's the regulatory equivalent on the quality side to what we're just talking about in terms of design controls. And you might remember, John, you know, a moment ago, I asked you the question, you know, you said in your in your blog to make sure that the device is designed and developed correctly. And I asked you how to do that. Yeah. Well, it was a little bit of a loaded question, John, because you provided an answer in your counterpoint. You yeah. said the purpose of design validation is to demonstrate that the device meets the user needs design validation is proof that product designed and developed is the correct product, uh, close quote. So what you said in your blog, John, at least six years ago, was as long as you um, meet the needs of your user, then you are designing the correct product. And my question, and again, I'll leave this as a rhetorical one as you want, is just because we show via validation that we meet the needs of the user, does that necessarily imply that we've designed the correct device? I yeah. personally don't think so, but maybe you or other people might have a, a different view. And one other thing I would just say, uh, uh, in addition to that, John, um, I find it interesting how so many companies, they do validations that's required you know, for, for so many things, but rarely ever do I see a company validating their validation. Yeah. And in fact, John, you may remember fairly recently, I did one of my webinars for Greenlight on exactly that topic, validating the validation, because I see it, and maybe you see it too, John, I don't know. I see a lot of companies doing validations that, in my opinion, are totally meaningless because they're doing the wrong validation. So what good is doing a validation and passing your validation, showing that you've validated, <laughs> if you're doing the wrong validation? <laughs> what, do you, what do you think of that, John? Uh, sounds like a checkbox, Mike. Sounds like I'm just trying to get a check mark so I can move on to something else. But you know, um, you know, it's it's a fair point, and you know, and um, you know, just just say not that my thinking is completely different from what it was back in December of of 2014, but I will say it has evolved. I don't think in 2014 I appreciated the whole notion of total product lifecycle um, such that I do today. Uh, and, you know, I, I guess sort of in that that bucket of total product lifecycle uh, are things like design changes, you know, and, and um, you know, and, and it's, a, it's a really good point, you know, validating your validation methods. How do you know that this result uh, of this validation study, activity, trial, whatever the case may be, how do I know that it's actually valid? Um, and, and I think there's this, this, uh, this whole feedback loop that sometimes we as an industry forget about, you know, call it design changes, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, as your product is in use and you should be learning, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect medical device. I mean, I should uh, be doing the prudent engineering and, and the necessary 
due diligence to make sure that the product that I'm putting out there is, is safe and effective to the best of my knowledge. And once people start using it, I'm going to learn something. And guess what? You're probably not going to learn anything that you captured in your design history file or that you already thought of in your risk assessment, et cetera, et cetera. These, you're going to learn things that you never thought of before and couldn't have imagined. And you know, wouldn't it have been nice maybe to have uncovered that before it went to market? Maybe. But the point is, keep learning, keep iterating, keep evolving, keep making your products safer and better and, and, and more effective for patients. I absolutely agree, John. But on the other hand, you know, those words are easy to say, but what do they really mean in, the, in reality, in the real, real world? And just to close the loop on what I call validating the validation, because I just have one more topic I wanted to bring up based on my original podcast and your blog response. A lot of the recommendations that I make come not just from my uh, experience in regulatory and quality, but in my product liability experience. If I can show, and I've done this in a, in a number of cases, that the company validated the product and the FDA bought in on their validation, but if I can show that they did the wrong validation, they didn't validate their validation, so to speak, ka-ching, 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 right? So it yeah. goes back to your what you just mentioned and what we've talked about many times, that checkbox on the form. What good is doing a validation if you're not doing the right validation? What good is doing a validation if you're uh, if you haven't validated your validation and, and so on and so on? The last thing that I thought I would bring up, John, and it's one of my many favorite topics to talk about, and it's another thing that you kind of called me out on in your in your blog response, and that is the topic of risk, and specifically how it relates to off-label use and anticipated misuse. And for the last time, John, I'll throw your words back in you uh, you one more time <laughs> all right you said in your in your blog because 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 i made the comment um you know i was talking about how uh, we're not required to address risks associated with off-label use uh in the design controls or in any of the regulation and you responded by saying you meaning the the company i think must address off-label use as part of your risk management documentation in fact, considering how the product will be used correctly and how it could be in, used incorrectly is a major benefit of following the design control and risk management practices, whether we're talking about uh, ISO 14971 or the design controls or, 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 or whatever it is. And here's where it gets interesting because, and again, this is not a criticism, John, but I think you are doing what many people are doing uh, here, and that is they're equating what the design controls call anticipated misuse with off-label use. And in my view, John, those are absolutely not the same thing. And here's why. Because there are many examples where the standard of care, what we teach in medical school, is, is actually the off-label use of a product. This is not true for just medical devices. This is true for drugs. This is true for biologics, combination products, you name it. So if there's something the standard of care in other words, what we teach in medical school, it's off-label use. It might be off-label use, but how can we say that's anticipated misuse if that's, in fact, what we're teaching people to do? Does that make sense, John? How, how would you think sort so. of uh, connect those dots? Yeah, I think so. And from you know December 2014 to present day, you and I have talked about this particular topic a fair amount. And it is in some veins or some ways of looking at it, it can be a slippery slope. I think I still stand behind what I'm about to say pretty vehemently. I, th I think it's important as I'm designing a product that I have to think about usability. I have to think about, um, you know, how people can can do things the wrong way. 
but to your point, that's a little bit different than off-label. But I think at the same time, there are cases, specific cases, and, and the classic example in our industry is the, the good old biliary stent device. Uh, I remember once upon a time, I, I think there were more products that had found the, quote, loophole in the process, if you will, and brought to market a biliary stent knowing full well that the stent was never going to be used for biliary indications, knowing full well that the stent was going to be used for coronary indications. Yes. And and I think that was the point I was trying to emphasize here. If I'm designing a product knowing full well that it's going to be used for something completely different than, than what I'm labeling it as or what I'm getting clearance or approval for, then that is I'm, I'm doing the wrong thing as a product developer. Well, it's a, it's a form stent designer myself, John, I can tell you back in the day, uh, you mentioned the biliary stent. It's one of my favorite examples. 90% uh, was off-label use, 90%, yeah. which meant that only 10% was 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 on-label. Now, don't, I don't want you or anybody to, else in my audience to miss my message. From an engineering perspective, you know, as a professional biomedical engineer, I agree 110%, maybe more that testing our device and designing our device to be used, not just the way that it's to be used in the theoretical world of regulatory affairs where everybody reads and follows the regulation, but in the real world of the practice of medicine, I think that's first and foremost, the most important thing, you know, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. However, I'm simply pointing out that from a regulatory slash quality perspective, that's not exactly where we set the bar. Should we, you know, adjust that regulation, you know, I would be the first to say, let's have a discussion on exactly how to do that. But that's the point that I'm, I'm trying to make here. Yeah. Does that I, I, make I, sense? It, it does make sense. And like I and said, I, there's, there's levels, layers and levels of, of gray for sure. Um, I, I think the point is, you know, number one, I need to make sure I'm designing the, the device in a way that, that factors in misuse, either intentional or unintentional. I need to understand what if it's intentional or, or off-label use. I need to understand what that's all about, and 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 um, you know I may or may not address that. But but if I know full well that my product is going to be used for something completely different than the way I'm labeling it, and that's why I'm bringing this product to market, then I need to question my practices. That's that's all I'm trying to say on this. On that point, and on all of the points that we're talking about today, John, I could not agree more. The last thing that I just want to mention in in, in the blog, because I need to try to correct you know a little bit from my end, one of the things that you included was uh, apparently a direct quote from me. Uh, I didn't listen to my podcast over <laughs> again. Okay. And so, but I'll assume that you got the quote right. Uh, let me let me read the quote. It says, uh, and this is uh, you, John, quoting me. Having a design control system in place is holding us back. Don't just follow the rules. If the rules make sense, go ahead. If the rules do not make sense, then don't follow them. If a rule is to my advantage, then yes, I will follow it, meaning me. If the rule is not to my advantage, then I will carve out a new path. Now, whether or not those were my direct words, I don't know. I haven't learned, uh, I haven't listened to the podcast again, but let me try to explain what I mean or what I tried to mean because this is a very important point and it's something that some people um, have, have asked me about in the past. Um, I'm not saying don't follow the rules. I'm not you know, advocating anarchy. My message is very, very simple. If the rules make sense, 
follow them. But if the rules don't make sense, whether we're talking about the design control rules or anything else, if the rules don't make sense and we follow them anyway, and we all agree that they don't make sense, and yet we follow them anyway, and let's be honest, John, every single week of my career, and sometimes every day, I see companies doing things, following rules that just simply don't make sense uh, and follow it anyway. Is it a problem with the system or is it a problem with us? So if you genuinely believe, and this is something that I do in my professional practice, John, a lot, if you genuinely believe that the rules, that the guidance, that whatever you know, you're following doesn't make sense, please take it to the FDA prophylactically and say, here's what the regulation says, here's what the guidance says, here's why it doesn't make sense or it's not possible in our particular case, and here's what we're going to do instead. And 90% or more of the time, John, when I do that, um, as long as my arguments are based on the biology and the engineering, forget about the regulation. That's the least important. I'm going to get myself in trouble now because somebody's going to quote me. Oh, this wackadoodle Drew's guy said regulation doesn't matter. <laughs> no, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, well, you're laughing, John, but in this 30-second sound bit society that we live in, those are the snippets that people hear that get reported. You know, don't get me started when I'm interviewed by the popular press and they take a 30-minute interview and they snip out one or two little sentences from the middle that are totally out of context. So if the rules don't make sense, go to the FDA and work with them to explain, okay, this is what the rule says and it doesn't make sense and here's what we're going to do instead. That, in my opinion, John, is the way this game is supposed to be played. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, and I think reading this, I mean, it was, it was a, certainly a, a trip down memory lane reviewing some of this information and, you know, again, a lot has certainly changed about your and my relationship from 2014 to today. And, um, you know, what I've learned to appreciate about you, it, it, you're not saying if the rules don't apply, uh, forget it and, and don't do anything. You're just saying, explain why it doesn't. Provide a rationale and a justification. It's not a, it, it, just because you don't feel that a, a quote rule applies to you isn't a, a free ticket to, to be an anarchist and say, screw it all, I'm not doing anything, I still have to, to, to make my case. I still have to explain my rationale. Uh, it's not an excuse for still being a prudent engineer and, and having the responsibility of designing and developing a safe product. That's not what you're saying. I, I don't know that I, you know, the previous version of myself back in 2014, when I listened to the your podcast, I don't know that I appreciated that. To be quite honest with you, certainly not the way that I do today. Mike, any other thoughts to, to wrap and, things and up today? I, I, yeah, just to wrap up that, I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with with two final thoughts. One is one of my many favorite quotes to tie up our our last discussion about following the rules. Uh, this is a slide that I end uh, many of my regulatory presentations with. It's a quote from General Douglas MacArthur, who said, rules are mostly made to be broken and are too often for the lazy to hide behind. You know, I think it's become a convenient excuse for a lot of people to justify not just what they do, but what they don't do by simply reading and following the rules. And again, as you just reiterated, you know, rules are important, no question about it, but we should not be uh, reading and following regulation like a mindless automaton, like a computer executing yeah. lines of code one after another without asking, does this make sense? And then the last thing that I would offer, John, especially for the benefit of the, the younger folks in our audience, I would just remind everybody when it comes to design controls, you alluded to the design control doc guidance document, John, which goes 
goes back to 1997, and I agree with you. Um, many people have said to the FDA that that guidance should be uh, should be uh, updated. I take oh, absolutely not. Leave it alone. There's, uh, that's a that's a leave it alone. You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. What we need to is under people more understanding what's in it as opposed to creating more. Amen. But anyway, I just wanted to remind everybody that when I when I started out in this business as an R and D engineer, um, in the early 1990s, this was long before the design controls even existed. You know, we had, you know, lots less regulation today, uh, than, than we do today. Fast forward almost three decades later, we have thousands and thousands of pages of regulation, uh, including the design controls. But the question is, are our medical devices really any better? Are they, is the world a better place? I'll leave that as a rhetorical question, John, but back in, in those early days, we didn't have a lot of regulation. We didn't have the design controls in place. And yet somehow, I don't know how this happened, John, somehow we were able to get reasonably decent medical devices onto the market. Fast forward to today, you know, three decades later, we've got thousands of pages of regulation. The question is, is the world a better place? I'll leave mm-hmm. that as a rhetorical question, John, something to think about. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, Mike, thank you so much for for this. Uh, like I said, this jog down memory lane, and you know, it's. Uh, I think it's one of as you and I have talked about it now almost six years later. It's it's still one of those those topics that unfortunately is is um, more top of mind than it should be. I think, you know, hopefully, and maybe this is a little bit of my altruism coming through, but I hope people are starting to realize how important it is. To, to be thorough and, and uh, as complete as you possibly can be in a validated way during our product development efforts. Again, remember patients' lives are, are at the end of this. I mean, you're designing and developing a product to improve the quality of life. So put that same sort of rigor and passion and, and focus uh, into your design and development efforts. I couldn't agree more. And just as a lead into maybe a future discussion, you know, in this era of evidence-based medicine, or what some people today refer to as comparative effectiveness research, what I'm looking for is evidence that all of this additional regulation, including the design controls, is ultimately making the world, or at least our industry, a better place. And regrettably, John, I don't see a lot of it, and here's why. Because to this day, I still see companies getting 43 observations and sometimes warning letters because they don't do some of the most basic things. And maybe one of our next conversations, we can talk about some specific examples, but I'm talking about things like uh, there was a company recently in the news, a major medical device company that may, that makes um, permanent implants. FDA dinged them because they did not have an uh, adequate post-market surveillance system in place. A major Fortune 100 medical device company with permanent implants not doing sufficient post-market surveillance. Another company apparently made changes to a device already on the market. And never mind, you know, special versus special 510K versus letter to file. I could care about that. The company apparently did not do the most basic engineering testing to show that those changes that they made in their device did not impact the safety, efficacy, performance, and so on of the device. I'm sorry, John, but this is going to sound very, very harsh to some people. Maybe I'm just getting old, but people don't know that the sorry people that don't know that they should do those things, whether they're required by the FDA or not, they should not be in this business. I totally as agree. You, as you pointed out many times, we're talking about people's lives here, and uh, some stuff to me is just basic information. Yeah, I agree, and you know we'll let that 
be the final word. And and I, I guess I'll just pile on that just a little bit. There's no amount of regulation that's going to prevent that. That's that's just called being a good human and understanding what's right for, for the people that are going to be using your product. <laughs> so I, I agree. But yeah, we'll dive into that later. Uh, folks, I used I'll, to teach in engineering school, what I call... Yeah, yeah, yeah go, go ahead. ahead. I, was just, I was just getting ready to wrap up, but go ahead. I'm, I'm, now I'm on the edge of my seat wondering what they used to teach in engineering school. No, that, 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 that's, you know, we can wrap this up. I was just simply going to end by saying, um, you know, as I've talked about before, I consider everything to, in the design controls and, and pretty much everything in the regulation overall to be basic engineering, prudent engineering, what we used to teach in engineering. Oh, yeah, school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just not sure, John, and I do teach, you know, in engineering today. I'm just not sure if we still teach that stuff or not, but that's a topic of a, of a yeah. discussion at a, at a pub sometime, I suppose. Yeah, I, I think that it probably is. Folks, uh, anyway. Yeah, no, Mike, thanks so much. Uh, as always, I, I look forward to these opportunities to, to talk about, you know, the things that are impacting our industry. So, folks, it's Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences. And as always, I want to thank you all for uh, taking a moment out of your day to listen to this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Uh, continue to spread the word and, and keep the Global Medical Device Podcast as the number one podcast in the medical device industry. As always, this is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. <laughs>